we'll go to second service, roll over to the lunch. But you guys said, no, we're still waking up. We're coming early and we're going to come back. Huh? Hopefully come back for the annual meeting. Right. Very exciting. Uh, glad you're with us. And uh, just so glad that Brian was able to pray for us and pray for the compassion outreach going on in Togo, uh, the child development center there that we've sponsored. And again, February 10th is just two weeks away, and it's going to be an opportunity for you to get involved personally and sponsor a child. So the stories that you heard in the video were only possible because someone decided to give that monthly uh, cost, pay it, so that these children could go and be a part of the Compassion program. And so we need, uh, we're hoping for 50 kids to be sponsored from FBC. Uh, and that's a $38 a month commitment. You'll be hearing more about it. So keep praying about how you could possibly jump into that. Um, now's the time to turn to Hosea. So go ahead and open your Bible and join me there. Uh, Hosea chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Go ahead and open up uh, one on the seats in front of you. Feel free to use those. Or of course, if you have your phone or tablet, you can follow along there. And this is our last week in the book of Hosea. It's our fourth and final message. I know what you're thinking. No, more prostitution, more scandal, more adultery, uh, more judgment for sin. And um, you're going to just have to wait for some of those things. Um, but we're wrapping up with chapter 3 because you'll see that chapters 1 through 3 are kind of a contained unit, and it, it covers all the main themes and the big ideas of the book that God is trying to communicate to his people. And so I encourage you on your own to go and read uh, chapters 4 through 14, and you'll see kind of the main themes all uh, repeated and revisited throughout. But chapters 1 through 3 give us a great snapshot of the heart of the book. And so we're going to jump into that. And uh, as we prepare to do that, you know, it's, it's always fun telling people that I'm a pastor because you get interesting responses from people. And a lot of times they don't know how to respond and it can make things a little uncomfortable. Like maybe the conversation will be flowing along and then you mention, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. And they kind of get really quiet and they're like, uncomfortable all of a sudden, they're running through their head, like all the things that they said previously, like, did I cuss too much in front of him, or how, what is he going to think of me, or they're like, they look at you like you just told them you like, you know, steal people's cats and sell them on eBay for a living, they're like, you do what, like, that's so strange, and, and every once in a while, maybe you've had some of the reactions just saying like, hey, I go to church, and they're all of a sudden like, oh, that's strange, um, sometimes though, people will, will give me one of these lines where it's, it's, they're trying to make a joke, trying to make light of it, and they, they say something along the lines of, like, oh, like don't worry, I, I won't come to your church. I like, wouldn't want like, the building to shake, or like, I wouldn't want you know, steam to be coming out the doors, or I, I wouldn't want to be like, zapped when I walk in the doors. Anyone ever said that to you? Like, you go to church, oh, I, I won't show up, don't worry, it would be too uh, bad if I did. And what they're saying with that, they're trying to make an attempt at humor, but the idea is, like, I'm too bad to step foot in a church. Like I've sinned because of what I've done or where I've been. God would be uh, mad at me if I took any steps toward him. Like it wouldn't be good for me to show up. And whenever I hear that, I always think two things. The first thing I think is you don't understand my church and the people at my church and how if you showed up, how loved you would feel, how welcome you would, would feel. We actually had friends come uh, 
a month or two ago for the first time here, and they told us, they were like, we, honestly, it was the friendliest church we've ever been to. Like, we felt so loved, so welcomed, so encouraged by the people there. And so I just want to brag on you guys a little bit. Just, I love you. I love the warmth and the love that you all share with one another. And to anyone that is new, it's really noticeable. And that wasn't like a one-time incident. We'd, I hear that regularly, just how loved and welcomed people feel here. So keep up the good work. So when someone says that, like, oh, I don't think it's not a good place for me to be. I wouldn't be welcome there. It'd be bad. I always think, you don't understand my church. And the other thing I think is, you don't understand my God. You don't understand God's Hard, because under that attempt at humor is this assumption that, again, I'm bad, and so if I make any steps towards God, he's going to be angry with me. He, he's not longing for me to come in the doors of the church and draw close to him. He, he'd rather me stay away. And so even if that's a bit of an exaggeration and they're trying to make a joke, it kind of shows sometimes the assumption that people have about how God feels towards them. And so we see in Hosea this picture of how God feels towards sinners, how God responds to us when we're unfaithful. And it's not always what people assume it is. And so with that, look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. As we continue our study, it says this, The Lord said to me, this is Hosea speaking, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. I'll talk about the raisin cakes in a minute. Don't worry. Uh, but for, for the last few weeks, the story of Hosea, right, the prophet, the preacher, the man of God, was instructed to get married to Gomer, this promiscuous woman, very likely a prostitute. And the story of their marriage has kind of taken a back seat in the past few weeks. If you've noticed, the end of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2 is focusing in on uh, the people of Israel, God's people, who have sinned and committed idolatry and turned to other gods, and it's talked about judgment for their sin and hope for restoration and all kinds of big themes like that. But now we're at the beginning of chapter 3, and this relationship between Hosea and Gomer is back in focus. In verse 1, we see God talking to Hosea, his prophet, his servant, about Hosea's troublesome wife. And you see in verse 1, it reminds us about Gomer. What does it tell us about her? It says she is loved by another man. She is an adulteress. And so not only did she have a bad, questionable reputation when Hosea married her, it seems that she's continued her promiscuous ways. She's continued in adultery, sleeping with other men. And if you remember chapter 1, do you remember the second half of chapter 1 where she's bearing children? They have three kids in the picture. The, the first child, if you remember, it says that Hosea was the father. But then with the next two children that are born, it doesn't mention Hosea being the father. It doesn't tell us at all who the father is. And so most commentators think there's this subtle reminder that we don't really know who the dad is of these children. Gomer has been running around on Hosea. She has 
gotten herself in a mess. She's in bad shape. I mean, think about morally. She's, she's destroyed her marriage. She has uh, broken God's law. Legally, this would lead to trouble for her as adultery could be punished by death. Uh, economically, she's in trouble, as we'll read in a minute, how she finds herself with some debt that she cannot pay. And so morally, legally, economically, Gomer is in bad shape. And at this point, if you're Hosea, I mean, you never really want to say, I told you so to God, but he's probably kind of thinking like, Lord, I knew this wasn't a good idea from the start. Like, I knew who Gomer was. Why did you have me marry her? Again, why am I doing this? Because this isn't going very well at all. Remember, God said, Hosea, she's the one for you. She's the one I want you to marry. And now he finds himself here, and Hosea's got to be thinking, what in the world was God thinking? I mean, if you or I were to give relationship advice to Hosea, and he told us, hey, here's, yeah, I'm married to Gomer. Here's what she's doing. She's had a couple kids with other guys, and she's running around to me now, and she's not even coming home at night, and I don't even know what's going on. We would probably tell him, dude, you need to get out of that relationship, right? Like, this is not a healthy situation. I mean, any of us would say, this is, this is no good. You can move on. And that would be completely understandable and probably the right thing to do. But here we see in the text that God does something shocking, unordinary. It's striking the way that he tells his prophet to respond. You look at verse 1. He says, I want you to go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Because Hosea, I don't want you to look for the exit. I want you to hang in there. I want you to go and love her. Love her again. It's an important word there. Right? You've shown your love to her before. I want you to show your love to her again. Even though she's broken your heart, I want you to go love her. Even though she's given you every reason to leave, I want you to go and love her. I want you to love her even though she's unlovely. Love her. He doesn't say, go, Hosea, and condemn her. Or go, Hosea, and shame her. Or go, Hosea, and, and post on Facebook how uh, upset you are at your wife. No, he says, I want you to go and love her. I want you to show your love to her. Why? The rest of verse 1 tells us, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Although they turn to other gods and they love the sacred raisin cakes. Again, we remember the context of the book of Hosea. It's the 8th century BC, God's people in the northern kingdom of Israel, though they were supposed to uh, keep this covenant with God, this commitment, this binding relationship where they would serve him and know him and love him alone, they've broken that commitment and they've started worshiping other gods, the gods of the Canaanites and the surrounding nations like Baal and others. And so they have become unfaithful to God. It says they love the sacred raisin cakes, which, again, I bet you didn't know that God just really hates dried fruit. When he sees trail mix, he's just like, ah, I can't stand this stuff. Get it out of my side. I'm so frustrated that my people are eating raisins and eating raisin cakes. This is ridiculous. Um, sorry, that, I, had to, I had to go there. That was too easy. Um, we don't know exactly what the raisin cakes, sacred raisin cakes, are about. Most Commentators think that this was some uh, form or element used in the worship of pagan 
gods. And so in some way, it was incorporated into cult worship and pagan worship. And so it was a sign of participating in idol worship and not worshiping the true God. And so God has no problem with raisins or dried fruit in general, but in this situation, that's kind of what it led to. And so the point is the same then that we've been looking at for several weeks now, the people worshiping other gods, giving their hearts away to other lovers and not to God alone. And so, verse 1, Hosea, I want you to love Gomer and love Gomer, your wife, in her unfaithfulness because I love my people even when they have been unfaithful to me. Right? And like we talked about a few weeks ago, he wants this marriage of Hosea and Gomer to be this visible, powerful representation of his relationship with his people, something that the people could see and be reminded of who God is and how God interacts with them. And so the point here this morning is really that simple. God is saying to his people, I still love you. That's what he's saying. I want my people to know that I still love them, even though their life is a mess, even though they're running away from me, even though they've been unfaithful and done all kinds of sinful things. I, I still love them. And I still want to know them. They're still welcome to come back to me and receive grace and forgiveness and my love. And I don't know about you, but that's really good news for me because I know sometimes I feel pretty unlovely. I feel like God has given me all kinds of chances and opportunities to follow him, and I constantly screw up and fail and fall into sin and get discouraged. And I've given God countless reasons to say, you know what, Matt, enough's enough. You know, we're done. I've given you this many chances, but we're done. But God continues to show his grace and his patience and his love for all of us, even when we stumble. And so, when I hear people say, ah, you, I wouldn't be welcome in your church, or the building would shake, or I'd get zapped if I came in the door, thinking, I'm too sinful, I've got to clean my life up before I come to know God, I say again, you don't understand God, or His heart for you. You don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is that God catches his fish first and then he cleans them. We come to him as we are and then he changes us and he works in our life. And so yes, repentance is still important and grief over our sin is still important and obedience is still important and striving for holiness and following God is, is still important, of course. But our confidence as we come here each morning and as we approach God in prayer throughout the week is not in our own obedience and our own righteousness and our own strength and our own performance. Our confidence is in the work of Jesus, the gospel, that he was obedient, that he died for us, and now through him, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. And so it really makes you wonder how we think about God, but also how we treat the gomers in our lives, the gomers in our midst, the gomers in our church, or when we're a gomer, how we think about ourselves. When we have a checkered past, when we fall into sin, do we continue to remind people of their sin, remind people of their failures, putting them down? Or do we offer grace and love and our hearts go out to them the same way that God's heart goes out to his people? 
You know, one of my favorite pastors and authors, Tim Keller, I think we quote him almost every week, almost every week. He once said this, he said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. Think that's how God loves us. See, if someone says they love you, but they don't really know you, I guess it's kind of comforting, but it's a little empty, right? But if someone knows you and they don't love you, that's, that's our greatest fear, right? People seeing us for who we truly are and then being rejected or cast off as unworthy of belonging, that's our greatest fear. But what God does is he fully knows us and truly loves us. That's a liberating truth, that God sees us as we are. He knows where we've been. He knows where we are now. He knows what we thought on the drive into church this morning and the struggles we're having. He knows all of it. And he still loves us. He still loves us. He still welcomes us to know him. And so that's a simple truth from Hosea chapter 3 this morning that God wants you to hear today. If you're on the run, if your life's a mess... God loves you, and he wants you to come to him. But we'll see in the text there's more to the story, and there's actually a cost involved in Gomer returning home. Look at verse 2 with me. This is Hosea speaking now, right? God tells him to go and love his wife, and he says, So, verse 2, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley, And then I told her, you're to live with me many days and you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man uh, and I will behave the same way toward you. And so notice that in order for Hosea to bring Gomer home, he has to pay a price for her. And the text says it's 15 shekels of silver and about a homer or a lethic of barley. So some silver, some barley is this kind of payment, and there's speculation about what exactly required that payment. What situation did Gomer find herself in, and was she caught up in slavery at this point, and so we had to buy her freedom? Did she owe some kind of debt to these lovers and prostitution that she she couldn't pay herself? We don't exactly know, but the idea seems to be that Hosea has to pay off Gomer's debt of some kind. She's she's found herself in in some kind of mess that she has to be purchased out of. And so Hosea goes and he pays her debts and he brings her home. And verse 3 says, we're going to live together and you're not going to be with any other man and I'm going to be here with you likewise. Now, we aren't given a ton of detail into the thought process of Gomer and the inner motivations that are going on in her heart, why she committed adultery, why she was sleeping with other men. But we can assume that on some level, she did not believe that her husband's love was enough for her. She was not content in the love and the good things that he provided for her. And so she had to seek that elsewhere. And she didn't want this this marriage thing to limit her freedom and limit her joy and limit her fulfillment in life. So she had to look outside of it to go and get what she thought she needed. She wanted to keep her options open and not be uh, hampered down, right? 
But notice that the very thing she thought would bring her freedom actually led to her slavery. Okay, the very thing that she thought would bring life and joy and freedom and fulfillment, right, pursuing other men, has, has led to her ruin. And she's enslaved with this debt that she cannot pay. See, the same thing happens to us today. We talked about this a bit last week. If you remember, there are these idols that we worship that we lift up, these things that we look to other than God. We look to other things to provide fulfillment and joy and identity and comfort in our lives. They're not called Baal or include strange uh, raisin cake rituals or anything, but today we have these false gods. And we talked about some of them last week, the, the God or the idol of comfort or success or uh, alcohol or food or relationships, and we, we think that if we could just achieve something or, or, or follow this idol enough that it's going to give me what I need in life. It's going to provide for me. So we chase after them rather than worshiping God. And so we think that these things that we pursue are going to give us freedom and joy and fulfillment in life, but they actually lead to our slavery. We end up in slavery, and we don't, we don't use that word very often, right? The Bible speaks of being enslaved to sin, having the power of sin being over us. Uh, but today, we don't talk like that. We talk instead about things like addictions. It's kind of a modern-day word for slavery, addiction. Or uh, struggle. You know, like, I, I struggle with this, I struggle with that. Sometimes we try and lighten the blow. We don't want to say, I'm enslaved to this, but that's the reality. We say, I struggle with this, but really we're enslaved to it. So I struggle with overeating or I struggle with drinking too much. No, you're, you're enslaved to food or you're enslaved to substances. Or we say, I, I struggle with being a people pleaser. I just really want people to like me. No, you're, you're a slave to other people's opinions. I struggle with life just being all about me or about my appearance or on social media. I want to go to the gym all the time and look really good. No, you, you don't struggle with that. You're a slave to appearance. You're a slave to your image. You're a slave to how other people see you. You say, I just have to get good grades. I got to get that promotion. I got to get the corner office at work. I struggle a bit with being a workaholic. No, you're a slave to success. You're a slave to achievement. And so what happens is these idols that we serve, they enslave us and they constantly demand more from us. More time, more attention, bigger sacrifices, but they never deliver what they promise. And so we end up enslaved to them, constantly giving more and more in hopes that they will provide for us. And so it's just ironic that we find ourselves in slavery, but then what we do is we look to God's commands. We look to God's word and God's laws, and we say, oh, that's, that's too restrictive. You know, God's commands, those just too many rules. God wants to kind of limit my freedom and oppress me and keep me from joy. Like, you ever heard that? Like, Christianity is just too many rules, right? It's just a straitjacket. Like, God doesn't want you to have fun. God doesn't want you to be fulfilled in life. And so there's all these rules just to keep you um, limited, the reality is we look at Gomer is the exact opposite. Our problem is not that we are free and God wants to 
enslave us. Our problem is that we are enslaved and God wants to give us freedom. That's why we have God's word and God's ways to help us live freely with him. I I heard a pastor one time explain it this way. He was talking about his son, his four-year-old son, and he got him one of those uh, little like electric Jeep things, you know, like they're, like those things. Anybody have one of those when you were a kid or you got your kids one of those? Like, you know, it's a little car they could drive around. And I thought those were like the coolest thing when I was a kid. I never got one. Still bitter about it, but they're awesome. And so he was telling this story about he got his son, his four-year-old son, one of those little cars. And one day he was working from home and he was working in his office. He had the window open at the house and his son is like driving the little car. And he starts to hear from outside the window uh, the car, like, getting further away, like the little, like, going down the street. And he's like, that's not good. And so he goes outside, and he sees his four-year-old son, like, four or five houses down the street, driving the opposite direction. He's like, okay. So he goes, you know, chases him, get, catches up to him, and he says, hey, you know, bud, what, four-year-old son, what, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm going to get donuts. He's like, bud, you... You can't go and get donuts. Like, yeah, I'll be back later. It's like, no, you you can't do that. And so he he brings his son home, as any loving parent would, and he brings him back into the yard. And and soon after, he builds a fence in the yard, and so his son won't just drive away and go and buy donuts. And so think about in this son's mind, this four-year-old son. What what is he thinking? He's thinking, man, this is going to be fun. You know, I'm I'm capable to get in my little electric car. I mean, he's ready to like merge onto traffic on the street and drive and try and go get donuts. Like, this is is life. This is exciting. Here we go. I don't need my parents. I'm doing this thing. But what would have happened if he was left to his own devices? Who knows, but probably some pretty bad things. Could have been hurt, hit by a car, kidnapped, lost. Uh, Who knows? So he brought his son home and put him in his house, and he built a fence, not because he doesn't love him or wants to limit his joy or make life unfulfilling for him, but because he loves him, he builds this fence that keeps him out of danger. And that's how God's commands and God's laws work, like a fence that is designed to help us enjoy life. And see, sometimes what we want to do is we want to jump the fence, we want to jump the fence and go on our own and go and buy donuts. But if we do that, it leads to our ruin, our destruction, all kinds of bad things in slavery that could happen to us. And so God wants us to see here in Gomer's life where her sinful choices, her pursuit of freedom, where it brought her. In some kind of slavery with this debt that she could not pay. But God doesn't just leave her there. He doesn't just leave us there. Because you see, Hosea comes along, and Hosea pays her debt. And he buys back her freedom. Which, of course, reminds us of what was needed to purchase our freedom, to pay our debt. See, with Hosea and Gomer, we get this picture of redemption that points us forward to Jesus. That we all, had a debt that we could not pay. We all found ourselves dead in sin, running away from God, trapped, worthy of judgment, like Gomer. But God, 
in his love for us, sent his son Jesus to pay our debt, to purchase our freedom, to give us new life. The New Testament uses language like this all over the place. If you look at 1 Peter 1, 18, I'll just read it for us now. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So it wasn't silver or gold that was paid to redeem you. It was the blood of Christ. Mark 10, verse 45, a passage we looked at a number of times when we walked through the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, a payment for many. And so we see this language throughout the New Testament of redemption, of, of purchase, of a, a ransom being paid for our freedom. It's explaining what Jesus did on the, on the cross. He paid this debt that we could not pay for our sins, and he bought us freedom with his blood. And so that's the good news of the gospel, that we're offered this freedom, this new life in Christ, the canceling of our debts. We don't have to pay because Jesus did. And so look at the contrast, how every idol that we chase after asks more of us, is more demanding. Over time, bigger sacrifices, more focus, more attention, more time, more money. It consumes us, but doesn't deliver on its promises. Whereas Jesus is the only one truly worthy of worship because he paid the price for our freedom. And he now allows us to walk in that freedom with him. And so do you see how the gospel liberates us? The good news of Jesus Christ liberates us, not only paying our debt, but then reminding us of these truths that God is gracious. We see this in the cross. God is gracious towards us. And so we don't have to go and, and earn God's favor or, or compete and be better than most or constantly be comparing ourselves with other people and fear other people's opinions because we already have the love of God in Jesus Christ. And so we're already accepted because of Jesus. We're already loved and welcomed in because of Jesus. So we don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. It's a gift to us. We don't have to prove ourselves. The gospel also reminds us that God is good, and so we can be liberated and freed from the constant pursuit of comfort and pleasure and joy and life and all these other places. We can experience that in God. Because of Jesus, we have new life with him, and he gives us peace, and he gives us comfort, and he gives us hope. Also in the gospel, we remember that this God that we serve is the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. And so he frees us from the need to control every element of life. Some of us are control freaks. The gospel frees us from that. Because God says, actually, no, that's my job. I'll run the universe. You just trust me, love me, love the people in your life, and obey me, and things are going to be okay. Right? And so we're freed from, from control and from manipulation because we can just sit back and trust that God is going to accomplish his will and his purposes. And we can rest in that. So Hosea purchasing back Gomer is a picture of this freedom that Jesus offers us. Now the final verses of this chapter kind of point forward to the future, this hope of restoration for God's people. Verse 4 says this, 
For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod, ephod excuse me, or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So God's saying, for the people in the 8th century, there's going to be this season of, of discipline, a time where judgment does come. They won't have a king. And we see in 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel, kind of fulfilling this prophecy. All these marks of idol worship that are mentioned will be removed. But ultimately, what God's saying is there will result in this restoration. There's hope beyond that. This time that is coming where I will be with my people. They will seek me. They will come. It says trembling in verse 5. It mentions this sort of humility or awe that will come upon God's people as they approach him with gratitude and joy. His goodness and his blessings will be upon them. And so God is pointing his people to the future and giving them hope, saying, hey, as things are now, they will not always be. There's hope for restoration. And that's a continued theme that we see throughout the book, that God doesn't leave us where we are. God doesn't leave us without hope. That same promise is true for us today, that God will continue to work in our lives and by his grace, he'll make us less gomer-ish. That's an official theological word, gomer-ish. He'll make us less gomerish over time. This is the doctrine of sanctification. We're justified by faith in Christ, and then we enter into this process of sanctification where God is transforming us and shaping us and molding us more and more into the image of Jesus so that we look more and more like him, where he changes our hearts and teaches us and helps us to grow and, and gives us new desires. And so the gospel is not just transactional, where God makes a payment and now you're free to go. It's also transformational, that God gives us new hearts and new desires and helps us look more like him and think more like him and act more like him over time. And so I know that some of us feel lost or in our walk with the Lord feel discouraged, or like I can't seem to, to break this addiction, I can't seem to think the way that God wants me to, or I can't seem to stop sinning the way that I am. And here in the text, we see this hope that just as the people of Israel had this promise that one day they're going to seek me, they're going to draw near to me, I'm going to do this work in their hearts. We have the same promise true of us today that God is not going to leave us as we are, but he's going to be at work in our hearts and grow us and teach us and shape us into the people he wants us to be. Amber and I were thinking about this uh, the other week. We were thinking about our dog named Coda. Sorry, changing up the imagery a little bit here from husband, wife to dog and owner, and you'll see where I'm going. Uh, we have a dog named Coda. Many of you have met her. She will uh, embrace you with love and jump on you and paw you and, and lick your face, and it's all because she loves you, but it's a little intimidating sometimes. But uh, she's about four years old, and we got her from uh, a reservation, like an Indian reservation, Native American reservation, 
where she was running wild. Like her first several months of life, she was a wild dog running around with all these other dogs that were out there. And occasionally they'll go and like round up those dogs and bring them to the kennel so they can provide homes for them. And that's how we got her. But she used to, you know, be completely free, completely wild. She would run around. She would go to the bathroom when she wanted to and where she wanted to. She would run and play when she wanted to. She would sleep when she wanted to. I mean, everything was kind of up to her. And then she came to the kennel, and then we brought her into our home and adopted her, and she became a part of our family. But we noticed that for the first little while that we had her, there was still this like, desire of hers to be out in the wild. Where, like, every t- we had to be careful when we would open up the door because she might like, bolt out and might like, go and want to run free and play. Uh, anybody have a dog and you have to have to do that, right? You have to be careful opening up the door. But over time, we realized that she bonded with us and she became less and less likely to just bolt out of the door. And I like to think that it's because in her mind, however this computed in her little doggy mind, that she started to realize that life here is good and life here is better than it was on the reservation, and life here is better than it would be out on my own, because now I get my food every day, I get love and affection, and they play with me, and they walk me, and I lay on the couch, I'm, I'm comfortable, I don't have like the elements, the rain and the snow kind of pelting down on me, I'm never cold and left outside like that, I, I live in a nice temperate home, I get treats, Go on walks. And so her freedom is limited, right? She can't just leave whenever she wants. She can't go to the bathroom whenever she wants, thankfully. Um, And so I hope that in her little doggy mind, it's computed that, like, my life now is better than it was. My life now is better than it was when I was my own master and when I was out on my own. And I think that these last few verses in Hosea 3 are are giving us this promise that God is going to work in our hearts in such a way that we will begin to realize that life is better here with God. We have these impulses to go out and to go wild and be our own master and be free, but it doesn't lead to life and joy. He's helping us realize life with him is better. So we're going to seek him. We're going to come to him with with grateful hearts. And we're going to worship him and, and him alone. And so as we're wrapping up Hosea, reflecting on God's faithful love for unfaithful people like us, we have to consider how we will respond and not leave this just as some distant truth out centuries ago or up in the theological clouds, but really in the real stuff of life, how will we Respond, And some of us are like Gomer and need to come home. Our life has taken us somewhere. We've made decisions. We've wound up lost and broken. And in slavery, we need the freedom and the joy and the forgiveness that Jesus can offer. So if that's you today, God's invitation is to come home. He's paid the debt for you. Come dwell with me. Life is better here. If you want to make that decision today, I encourage you to pray to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. Declare your desire to walk with him. Or if you want to talk with someone about that, I'm sure if you're here with someone, they'd love to share with you. 
If you want to come up after the service and talk with me, I would love to just answer questions, walk with you about what that would look like. If you want to just check the box on your card, someone can follow up with you about questions about Jesus and following him and what that all looks like. I encourage you to respond. And maybe some of us here today, though, we've been walking with the Lord. We're Christians. We put our faith in Jesus. But we need to kind of recalibrate our hearts. And like last week, are there idols that have crept in, things that we've started to trust in that aren't God and him alone? The invitation for us is to recalibrate, to repent, to turn from whatever it was that was leading us astray and to put our trust in Jesus and our full confidence in him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love. It really is uh, undeserved. We have not earned it, but you give it to us. You give us your grace, your favor. You welcome us home because of the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you for that. And we pray that you would help us to be people with hearts that are faithful to you. Make us more like you, God. Help us see that life is better here with you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.